I'm telling you, it's been a day. It has. And uh, here's what's fun about that. I get to preach now, and I don't care as much as I normally do in one way, which is like, I'm just going to say whatever comes out here, all right? So we'll see what happens. If you got a Bible, you can open it up to 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going into this uh, you know, this holiday weekend and, and all of that. And I was reflecting on, um, you know, that, that in this nice holiday weekend, I get to talk about suffering. And I was talking to my brother about what he's going to preach on next week. And I said, well, I would lighten the mood a little bit. Don't go too deep or too dark uh, because I get to talk about suffering this weekend. And suffering as a Christ follower is different than how the world suffers. And I want to lay out today how Peter explains to us as followers of Christ, how do we walk through difficulty? And in this particular text, what Peter is doing is he is laying out how we suffer as a Christ follower. And in that, what Peter is saying, oh my goodness, saying, (coughs) saying is that there's one thing to suffer as a Christian, He points out there's another thing to suffer as somebody who has done something foolish or has engaged in sin. He points that out in verse 15. And then there's a a third type of suffering that we all know, and that is the suffering simply of the human condition, the trials that we face, the difficult seasons that we face, and they exist simply because we live in a fallen and a broken world. And so in that, there's like three different camps, and I'm generalizing, but I want to help us understand this this morning. Camp one being, I'm suffering simply because I'm proclaiming the name of Christ. Number two, I'm suffering because I did something foolish, or, or you engaged in sin and there are natural consequences. And then camp number three, the type of suffering that is simply a result of the human condition the fallen world, the tragedies of this life. And what Peter is speaking to directly is camp number one. But there are elements of what Peter is teaching that we can apply to camps number two and number three as well. And I think in that, what we learn is how does the Christian suffer in such a way that it sanctifies us? If I was going to have a title for this morning sermon, it would be sanctification by suffering or said another way, spiritual growth through suffering or said another way, sanctification or spiritual growth through suffering and difficult seasons where we're empowered by the Holy Spirit and blessed by him to endure tough times in a godly way. But that's a really long title. So, sanctification by suffering. How do we face difficult seasons in life? Whatever camp, one, two, or three. In such a way that grows us, that makes us more like Christ. And Peter lays it out, I think very neatly, very clearly for us, in this text. And so, in a very simple way this morning, I just want to walk you through 1 Peter chapter 4 and point out what he teaches us in it. He starts in verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. And Peter has written much about suffering. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he wrote those famous words uh, where he talks about the trial coming upon us and being refined in the fire, and it's showing the genuineness of our faith. 
And here Peter hits the same subject again later on in the same letter. He says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to what? To test you. As though something strange were happening to you. See, this little teaching on uh, sanctification through suffering is a conclusion to our series on myths of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. There's a myth out there that if I'm filled with the Spirit, then I won't face difficulty. The truth is, being filled with the Spirit means we can face difficulty with the strength of the Holy Spirit with us. This particular myth, it's very dangerous. It has crept in because of a lot of bad doctrine and false teaching that if we just pray certain things or say certain things or have certain levels of faith, then as Christians, we're somehow immune to difficulty, persecution, or suffering. This is completely false. It is contrary to the teaching of Christ, who said, in this world, you will have trouble, who said, they hate you, or they hate me, and so they will hate you. It's contrary to the uh, teaching and the life and the example of the early church, um, Peter, James, and John, all who faced intense suffering and persecution and also really knew how to pray. And they taught extensively on the subject. And they didn't teach on it as saying, this might happen. They taught on, it will happen. And so this particular myth, it is, it is dangerous and it is a lie. The truth is, we will face all three types of suffering. We will face the suffering of being a Christ follower if we are genuine in our faith. We will all mess up and will face uh, natural consequences and tough seasons. And then we all experience the tragedies, the trials, and the difficulties of life simply because we live in this world. And what we have is a Holy Spirit who empowers us in those moments. That being filled with the Spirit then helps us walk through those seasons in a way that honors God. And when we walk through those seasons in a way that honors God, Peter lays out some truths. He lays out some perspective that we can have to help us walk through it best. The first thing he says is, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Perhaps you would say to me, Stephen, I, I just got baptized or my faith is at an all-time high. I'm pursuing Jesus unlike I ever have before. And as I'm doing it, it seems like the fiery trial is ramping up in my life. Yeah. Don't be surprised. In the first camp, the suffering as a result of the name of Jesus, there's different levels of this. One of them is simply being insulted or ostracized for your faith. That by proclaiming the name of Jesus, by standing up for biblical truth, that there's either insult, verbal assault, or uh, some type of work or social ostracization as a result of being a follower of Christ. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Another uh, ramping up of this, and Peter and some of the early Christians faced this, was uh, absolute like physical persecution, uh, whether that was imprisonment or that was beatings, or in certain cases, I'll point out some today, actual uh, martyr, martyrdom, being murdered for their faith. What is Peter saying? Don't be surprised. 
In chapter 5, Peter's going to talk about how the enemy of our souls, the devil, is uh, prowling around like a roaring lion looking to devour us and will use spiritual warfare against us. And I think particularly in moments when our faith is on the rise and Peter is saying, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. So yes, your faith is going uh, exceptionally well or you're pursuing Jesus unlike you ever had before and then it's like all of a sudden out of nowhere something comes up and Peter's first hint to you is, yeah, that's going to happen. Don't be surprised. But Peter doesn't stop there. He he doesn't just stop and say, don't be shocked and then move on to something else. What he says is, don't be surprised when these moments happen. And when they do happen, then here's how you should respond. And I think if you connect what Peter is saying in chapter four with what he says in chapter one, not only is he saying, here's how you should respond. What he is saying is that your response in this way is an indication of a genuine faith. The one way for you to identify how deep, how real is your faith is not in the seasons of ease and comfort, but in the seasons of difficulty. How do you press into Christ? What do you say of your heavenly father? How do you lift him up in the seasons that hurt the most, whether it's one, two, or three? And can you respond? As Peter says, this is how you ought to respond. So this morning might be a couple of things. It might be prep for you in what's coming. It might be teaching for you in how to handle the moment you're in right now. It might be correction for you if you haven't handled it in this way. And he's a gracious, loving, kind God. Just start over today. And so Peter walks us right through it. He says, when, when the fiery trial comes, don't be surprised. Instead of being shocked. And haven't you seen people like this? They're, they're, they're living their life. They have this doctrine or perspective of God. And something bad happens. And they're like, God, I thought you loved me. And it's like their whole faith crumbles. And sometimes it's not even anything crazy. Like it was pretty minor. The parable of the sower talks us about that, by the way. He says it's just like, like the seed was planted and it's just like one little problem and whoop, get rid of them, get rid of God. I, I have to go look for something else. Peter says, no, 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 that's not how the Christian does it. Here's how the follower of Jesus does it. Here's the first thing they do, he says. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad. By the way, he uses those words, rejoice and be glad, because those were the exact words that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount. He learned it from Christ. He says that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Do you get what he's saying there? He's saying rejoice and be glad in the midst of the trial right now because that is the indicator that when Jesus comes back for his church, you can also rejoice and be glad because you're on his team. Those who are not on team Jesus will not rejoice and be glad when he comes back. When he says, every knee bow, only those who have proclaimed him as king will rejoice and be glad in that moment. Those who did not 
commit their life to Christ. Those who are not in the kingdom, they will not rejoice and be glad. He says, how do you want to know that you're going to be able to rejoice and be glad in that moment? Because you can rejoice and be glad in this moment. His first thing is this, rejoice and be glad. Now, how is it that uh, anyone can rejoice and be glad in the midst of any of these types of suffering? Let's take them one by one, camp one, camp two, and camp three. How, and note, by the way, that Peter is saying when you share in Christ's sufferings. Christ's sufferings were, of course, not a result of his sin. Christ's sufferings, uh, what he's saying there, it's not just a result of uh, natural disaster or the human condition. Christ's sufferings are a direct result of the fact that Christ um, uh, embodied truth, that Christ pledged himself to the Father, uh, that Christ was hated by the world who opposed what he stood for and opposed him. That is Christ's sufferings. And so I do want to, to make sure contextually we understand that Peter is directly talking about here rejoicing and being glad when you share in Christ's sufferings, when you are insulted, persecuted, or the enemy attacks because of your righteousness because of being like Christ. We also, by the way, see this in Job, don't we? Why was Job attacked? Because of his righteousness. We see the conversation at the beginning. There's also something interesting that we learn, by the way, in Job, which is one of the most beautiful doctrines of suffering in the scriptures, right? Job's friends thought that Job was in camp what? Two. Said, Job, this is all your fault. Just repent and you'll be fine. Don't we do that sometimes to people? And we look and say, hey, if you would just repent and you would just fix it, then you'll be fine. Job, and reading Job, should make us pause a lot before we assign somebody into a camp. Let the Holy Spirit take care of it. Let the Holy Spirit take care of it. Also, isn't it interesting that in Job, all of the things that happened to Job, if we didn't know the backstory of the story of Job... Most people would go, oh, that's, that's camp three. That's just the result of a fallen world. But what we would see as camp three was actually camp one. What we would see is, oh, these are just natural disasters. These are just bad things happening. And um, God would never be a part of those things. Uh, what we actually see, because we know the backstory, is that he was very much in the conversation. Sometimes this messes with people. And sometimes it even prompts people to say things like this that I would warn you not to say. Oh, my God would never. No, what you mean is you would never. You are not God. His ways are not your ways. His thoughts are not your thoughts. Do not make yourself God. You make a bad God. He is a good God, a loving God, and a faithful God, always in every way. And he is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Old Testament, New Testament, today. And so in this, what Peter is saying is, is rejoice and be glad, in particular, when, when you face a, a camp one suffering. Uh, when somebody uh, comes after you simply because you're in the name of Jesus and you're proclaiming truth and you won't back down and you're acting in an honorable way, we take into consideration Paul's writing to the Thessalonians when he says that uh, in all times may your, uh, may your language be seasoned like as with salt so that other people look in and they, uh, and they go, wow, this person... 
Uh, I hate them and I hate what they stand for, but I just, I just can't hate them uh, because they're so kind and they're so this. And then actually Peter goes on and he says, I'm not talking about those who would suffer uh, because they're a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Uh, he, he's saying there's no honor, there's no integrity, there's no goodness in uh, suffering just because you mess up or you sin. Or even uh, if you're standing for Christ, but you're standing for Christ in such a way that isn't in alignment with, uh, like seasoned with salt, that isn't in alignment with showing or displaying godliness, that's not suffering for Jesus. That's suffering for being obnoxious. He says that, that's different. Suffering for Jesus, suffering, suffering for the name of Christ is when the world divides, when the world separates, when the world uh, speaks poorly, uh, when the world rejects, not you or your tone, but Christ. Christ. Now, I will say this, just so we're on the same page. Sometimes people will say things like, well, I just don't like that person because of their tone, or I don't like that person because of this. And what they're doing is they're just trying to cover up the fact that they really just don't love Jesus. That is true, and that does happen. We hear a lot about this a lot of time. People are like, oh, I don't like church, and church is a bunch of this, and church is a bunch of that. And people who have rejected Jesus will use that kind of language so that they don't have to step in Okay, and by the way, that's not necessarily for us to um, to always figure out and determine. Okay, um, but it is up to us to operate in love, to operate in love, but also to stand in truth. And if the world rejects, if the world divides, if the world runs away, if the world whatever, what do we do? We operate in love, and he says, rejoice and be glad. In Acts chapter five, the disciples are thrown into prison. And they're told, don't preach in the name of Jesus. Uh, and, and they said, yeah, we can't not do that. That's all we've got is Jesus' name. And so they get thrown into prison, and they get let out of prison, and then they are beaten. And then it says in Acts 5.16 that they, um, they, they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. So he says, rejoice and be glad. Why are you rejoicing and being glad, by the way, when you suffer for the name of Christ? One, it's identifying that you're on the right team. Be glad. Two, it's actually going to make you more like Jesus, and that's a good thing. And three, God actually has a tendency of taking the sufferings of his saints and using it to build his kingdom. And so believers, when they suffer for the name of Jesus, they're rejoicing and being glad, not because they're getting insulted or ostracized or left out. They're rejoicing and being glad because they know this means I'm on Jesus's team. This means I'm becoming more like Jesus. This means that Jesus's kingdom is going to grow. And in that, I can have joy. Even in camp two and camp three, Camp two and camp three. Even when we uh, face a difficult season, and it is a trial, it's a tragedy, it's a suffering, what is important to do, and oftentimes we know, like even if other people can't see, we tend to know what camp we're kind of in. Um, uh, when we're in camp two, one thing he's saying is don't, if you're in camp two, don't just say, no, this is camp one. Like, like if you have like if you have like mounting credit card debt and financial like trouble, you don't get to run to, to God and be like, God, I'm suffering for Jesus. No, you like your credit card. <laughs> He's like, this is different. These are different things, right? Now, in the midst of those seasons, 
in the, whatever it is, whatever area, when we have to live under the natural consequences of our actions, we can in that even rejoice and be glad. Why? Well, we can rejoice and be glad because God is faithful in those seasons. Because in his wisdom, he can often provide a way out. Because um, in those seasons, God has a tendency of stripping away things that we love more than him, and we get more focused on Jesus. Because in whatever the difficult season is, we have this opportunity to grow through them. What about camp three? Haven't you seen this used really poorly? Somebody goes to a tragedy and someone says, rejoice and be glad or have joy, count it all joy, my brothers. And people will use these types of phrases to people in the midst of type three tragedies. Christ and the Father find no joy in the tragedies that we face. What did Jesus do when Mary and Martha were weeping and mourning over the loss of their brother Lazarus? Did he say rejoice and be glad? No, he wept with them. He wept with them. But here's what's amazing. Even in the type three types of tragedy, trial, and test, the Christian, and and the world cannot, but the Christian can even rejoice and be glad in those. Even rejoice and be glad in those. And I think why, Paul explains in a little bit, but um, the Christian can rejoice and be glad because the Christian knows that he actually works out all things, all things together for his good. That God is near to the brokenhearted. That God often uses these tragedies in his life for our growth and his glory. You know, it was a year ago from today, on this Sunday, a year ago, that we collectively mourned as a church. And if you were there, um, you'll probably never forget that Sunday. We mourned with Zach and Michelle over the loss of, of little Logan. And we sat here and for, I mean, what felt like a long time because no one knew what to do. We, we wept with them over that loss. And isn't it been amazing over the last year as we have watched Zach and Michelle cling to the Father, pursue Christ, walk in this with a, a, a Holy Spirit strength and grace that is just um, almost like a treasure for all of us to get to watch. And as I was talking to Michelle earlier this week and having this conversation with her about kind of knowing what I was going to be talking about this weekend, she just simply added at the end, well, it's all for his glory, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And as Christians, even in the darkest, hardest seasons of life, through the tears often, we can actually rejoice and be glad because we know that our Heavenly Father can get glory even out of the most difficult moments. And without Christ, you don't have this. You you can't rejoice and be glad without a hope of resurrection. You can't rejoice and be glad without a knowledge of knowing that the Father, whose ways are unlike our ways, knows something and is doing something that we could never do. But in him, you can. And so this is the first part, my friends. Can you say this? Whatever suffering you're walking through right now, whether it's one, two, or three, can you rejoice and be glad in what is underneath and what God is able to do underneath? This is the first way to, to suffer or to endure in such a way that actually grows you and makes you more like Jesus. Second thing Peter says is this, 
He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Again, direct words from the Sermon on the Mount. Because, why are you blessed? Because the spirit of glory, and other translations add, and the spirit of glory and power and of God rests upon you. The second thing he's saying is, in the midst of your suffering, and I believe this is one, two, and three, though in particular, number one, he says, realize you're blessed. You are blessed in the midst of your difficult season. You are blessed in the midst of your suffering. We see this, I think, most in the New Testament with, the, uh, with Stephen, uh, who was the first martyr of the, of the Christian faith. And he is, uh, gives this prolific speech on the history of the faith and how it all comes together in Jesus. And as a result of his incredible sermon, they stone him. And as they're doing that, you, it tells us that the Spirit of God rushed upon him, that he got this glimpse of heaven, and he looks out at those who are killing him. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Of course, echoing the words of Christ on the cross. And there's like this Holy Spirit filling that comes upon him. And the second thing that Peter is teaching us, and he's speaking from experience, not just theoretically. When you face suffering, when you walk through dark seasons, the Holy Spirit of God will fill you in a way unlike any other season. He will fill you. Sometimes people are like, I want to know the Holy Spirit. What do I got to do? Pray and turn on Bethel music? I mean, okay. Like that, it does work. Sometimes. Here's another strategy. Stand up for your faith in such a way that other people will take opposition to it. Believe in Christ in such a way. Bear the name of Jesus in such a way that it actually matters. Then you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. Then he will rush upon you. You will know his presence. Isn't it interesting how as our culture has shifted from a, I'm using Big terms here. Well, generic term. Well, you'll, whatever. Okay. From a Christian culture or predominantly Christian culture to a neutral culture to what seems to be a increasingly anti-Christian culture. That as our culture has moved in that to probably where we're at right now, which is uh, more antagonistic certainly than, than, than I've ever experienced in my lifetime, and most of you who are older have said the exact same thing. Isn't it interesting that as we have seen that shift happen, that the conversation around revival and God doing something amazing seems to be working at the same rate as the antagonism is moving? Almost like God moves best in seasons of suffering. Like there's 2,000 years of history of that. You know what's interesting? People will pray this prayer all the time. God, do whatever you got to do to win that person's heart. God, do whatever you got to do to, to bring revival. And God's like, okay, cool. I'm going to increase your suffering. God, do whatever you got to do. Accept that. 
No, God, what I meant was do what makes me feel good. Do what is easy. Make sure that everything stays status quo. I'm happy. You're happy. We're all happy. We're blessed. Our teeth are white. Everything's going good. And then win all of the really comfortable people. And when you pray for revival, watch out. There's a long history of it. It often happens in the toughest moments, not the easiest ones. Do you still want it? Do you still want it? Do you have enough of a kingdom perspective to look and say, God, do whatever you have to do. People need to know your name. People need to bow. A nation needs to turn. Bring your glory, Lord. And when you do, I will rejoice and be glad. I will know that I am blessed because in that season, the Holy Spirit will fill me. He also says this, rejoice and uh, be glad. Realize that you are blessed because the spirit of glory. Well, I think what he's saying in there is that when we walk through these seasons, and I do believe, although this is particularly camp one, uh, that this happens in camp two and camp three as well, that there is a a sense of the glory of Christ. I asked a few people, uh, what was a verse that meant a lot to you in your most difficult season. And it was interesting that a recurring theme for them uh, was Matthew 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. That somehow in the midst of suffering, the verse that seemed to resurface for so many people was seek the kingdom of God first. Seek the kingdom of God first. That somehow through these seasons of difficulty, I think one, two, and three, and what gets stripped away is all of these other things that we put before Christ and we get down to like, uh, to, to like almost a sense of nothingness and in those moments, we just look and we say, and I just want Jesus. I just want the kingdom of God. That when these other things get pulled out of our lives, we realize how much more those things had our heart than we ever thought that they did. And Christ and the kingdom did not. That when suffering emerges, those things, then all of a sudden, uh, they, they don't seem to matter as much. And we just say, I just need more Jesus. He says, the spirit of glory will come upon you. I think what he's saying there is this, you will have like a picture or a view in intimacy with the Father and with Christ unlike you ever have in a season of comfort. Somebody pointed this out. The Holy Spirit is known as the comforter. You only need a comforter when you need comforted. And so there's an element of the Holy Spirit. There's an element of uh, of this big element or this big part of the Holy Spirit as the comforter. That's one of the names he's given that we will only know when there's a lack of comfort. And he rushes upon us and, 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 and begins to strip away to get us to this place of saying, nothing, nothing but your kingdom, Lord. I want to gaze. I want to look. I want to build my life on nothing but your kingdom. So the first thing he says is rejoice and be glad. 
in the midst of it. And you can only have this with an eternal perspective. Rejoice and be glad. Second, realize you're blessed. The spirit of God, the spirit of glory, the spirit of power, it's going to fall upon you in that moment. And I know some of you, uh, by the way, you might look at all of this idea of suffering and persecution, whether it's insult or it's physical or it's moving on or the enemy attacking you because you're in righteousness. And you go, I don't know if I would be able to endure that. I don't know if I'd be able to walk through it in such a way that was honorable. Like I want my faith to be genuine and tested. Okay, if you do, uh, first off, some of the fear, just take it off because the Holy Spirit is going to come in and do what you can't do on your own. The second thing, though, is to evaluate how do you deal with little suffering now? If not getting the parking spot is causing you salvation, you got a problem. If the, if the loss of like a little worldly thing makes you go, I don't even know about Christianity anymore. I don't know about God. Wake up call. Wake up call. Number third thing, by the way, that he does, uh, it, 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 Peter says is this. He says this in verse 18. And by 18, I mean 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Well, what does it mean to, be, uh, to not be ashamed? Uh, in one way, I think it is don't, don't stop. Don't stop proclaiming Jesus. Don't stop proclaiming Jesus as the only answer. Don't, don't stop preaching, proclaiming in the name of Jesus. Yes, I think that's one part of it. But I think the other part of this is, uh, is, 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 is God saying, I'm looking for a people who regardless of what they face and regardless of what they walk through um, will press in, not run away from the Father. And, and uh, maybe you've seen this. Somebody goes through a dark season. They go through a difficult season, uh, right? And um, they run from God. And they, uh, I can't believe he would let me walk through that. Uh, and, and all of this stuff comes out. And sometimes in God's grace and, uh, and beauty, he comes back and he rescues that person later. But haven't you also seen that people will go through a difficult season? I'd say one, two, or three. And as they're walking through it, all they can say is, man, in the midst of this, uh, in the midst of being persecuted for my faith, in the midst of, because of my own stupidity, losing everything, uh, in the midst of a tragedy that simply from being the human condition, uh, it's hard, there's tears, I've lost, whatever, but can I tell you this, my God is good, my God is loving, my God is kind, my God is just, and all I can do is continue to proclaim that I love him, that he's mine, and that he's good. That's all I got. It's all I've got. And Peter's saying, when you walk through that season, one, two, or three, don't be ashamed. Don't try to protect God. Don't, don't use lines that you're trying to make people feel better. Just proclaim his goodness. Just proclaim how you are pressing into him because you know that he is close to the brokenhearted and that he's going to walk you right through that season whatever it might be. Don't be ashamed. He is all of those things. If you don't believe that, stop singing Waymaker. Right? Stop, stop saying, oh God, I know you're good in all things. No, no, no. Peter's teaching us. It's when 
It's when we walk through the difficulty that those truths matter most. It also proves the genuine nature of our faith. I mean, in part, this whole series, but Peter, but Peter. I think in part, this is why Jesus is looking at Peter and he's going, how do I know this guy's going to follow me to the end? Because I redeemed him out of his lowest moment. He now knows nothing he can do is going to separate me from him. This guy's going to stick it out. Haven't you seen how God has this tendency, and and I want him to do this for you. That when you are faithful and you walk through the difficult season in a way that is godly, in a way that is according to God's will, that what he often does is that it doesn't just restore what was lost, but he restores and he brings now. Now, he doesn't always do that. But he loves to give us pictures of it, doesn't he? Like in the scriptures, when it talks about persecution and it talks about uh, the martyr of saints, you know what it almost always says immediately after? And the church grew. Even Stephen in his death. Even Stephen in his death, he didn't pray and declare and proclaim that the rocks wouldn't hit him. No, he faced it, filled with the Spirit of God. And then what did it say? Saul, who would be turned into Paul, was standing there and watching. Like the author wanted us to see that the blood of Stephen was the seedling to the redemption of Paul. That when something dies, when something falls apart, when you walk through it in a way that honors God, that he takes that, he restores it, and so often he makes it even better. He says, don't be ashamed of that. Don't be ashamed of that. Here's the last thing he tells you to do. Tells us to do. He says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, and the according to God's will there, in this particular context, just to clarify, it's not saying you're suffering because God willed it. That's not, that's not what this text is saying. He's saying, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, or suffering in a way that is in alignment with godliness, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Hopping to the end real quick. He says, don't stop godliness. Don't lash out. Don't uh, use your, your uh, season of suffering as an excuse to sin. Don't use it as an excuse to run from God. Don't use it as an excuse to get angry with God and think, well, I have a right to yell and to talk like God, to God like this. How did God respond to Job? Where are you? He said, when I created all of this. In other words, who are you to talk back to me? God was saying. We don't get to use our season of suffering. Uh, And gosh, this is another modern lie. People are like, oh, you can tell God whatever you want. Okay, you can, but there are consequences. (laughs) You don't, we don't get to talk back to God. He's God. You are flesh and bone that he brought together out of dust. Where were you, he said to Job. What do you and I get to do? Not yell at God. We get to say, you are good and you are worthy and I love you. And I hate this, but I love you. And this is, this is awful, but 
but I rejoice and I am glad in the fact that you are going to grow me in it and you are going to expand your glory. And I didn't want to walk through this season, but I'm going to walk through it knowing that I am blessed because I am filled with the Spirit of God as I walk through it. And I will not let a word come out of my mouth that does not honor you. And I will entrust my soul to you. He says, entrust your soul to the faithful creator. And why does he say your soul? Why does he say entrust your soul? I think, I think this is what he's getting at. I think this is what he's getting at. He's saying, when you walk through these seasons, they can be so hard, so difficult when you walk through them, that all of a sudden, like all of the physical, all of the worldly, it just peels away. And if you've walked through an intense season of suffering, you look and you go, I don't have anything. I got nothing left. But Father, you can have my soul. I give it all to you. And I will not run from you. I have nowhere else to go. For he satisfies the longing soul. And the hungry soul he fills with good things. And when you entrust your soul to the faithful creator in the midst of it, one, two, or three, in the midst of it, he is faithful. And he holds it. And he loves you. And he fills you with his spirit. And there's an intimacy there. The comfort in those seasons can never bring. You say, but how do I know I can trust him? How do I know? Well, because God has faced suffering. God faced suffering in the form of Christ. And Jesus endured the greatest suffering of all. It says he was crushed by our iniquities. In other words, the weight of suffering of our sin, not his, crushed him. And when Jesus faced suffering, he faced it exactly like he laid out here, Peter laid out here, with one exception. One exception. Did Jesus rejoice and be glad? Yes, it teaches us that with joy he looked to the other side. With joy he looked to the other side. Did Jesus ever grow ashamed of the Father? Of course not. He refused to back down from who he was and who the Father was. Did Jesus entrust his soul to his Father? Yeah. Your will, not my will, be done, he said. But there's one difference in how Peter teaches us to face suffering that was different for Christ. Maybe you caught it. Was Jesus blessed, full of the Spirit, in the midst of his suffering? No. What does 1 Corinthians teach us? He was cursed. He was cursed. In the midst of his suffering, Jesus' suffering, the ultimate suffering, he was not blessed, filled with the Spirit. He was cursed. Eli, Eli, the my sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was cursed in the midst of his suffering so that you and I could be blessed in the middle of ours. 
he faced suffering alone, void of the Spirit, forsaken by the Father, so that you and I could face whatever we walk through, filled with the Spirit, connected with the Father. He was cursed, so we would be blessed. This is how you know you can trust him. This is how you know he's going to walk with you in every season. And this is how you can rejoice and be glad underneath the sorrow. This is how you know the Spirit of God will rush upon you. How else do we know? Because when Jesus entrusted his soul to the faithful creator, what did the faithful creator do? Oh, three days later, he raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for death to hold him. He rose Christ from the dead, giving us the doctrine of resurrection to remind us and to give us hope in knowing that all suffering, all tragedy, all tough things that we walk through will one day be restored and redeemed. Sometimes in this life, often in this life, but ultimately always in the next. And so this this is how you walk through all seasons in a way that grows you up to be more like Christ. Let's pray. Father, it is easy for us to want to run and blame. That is not the way of the cross. Jesus, who is perfectly innocent, wouldn't even shift blame, but took it on himself. And Father, I pray that you would help us, whatever life throws at us, to walk in this way, proclaiming the name of Christ for the glory of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.